1: everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Carl Rolison, the author of a new biography of William Faulkner entitled The Life of William Faulkner, The Past is Never Dead, 1897 to 1934. Carl, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Oh, I'm happy to be here.
1: We're happy to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, One thing you have to know is that I'm a professional biographer. i put it that way because sometimes a writer will do a biography because he or she is interested in a particular subject. I'm actually interested certainly in particular subjects, but in the whole sort of field of biography, I've written books about biography. I've got a a book called A Higher Form of Cannibalism. (laughs) Yeah, Adventures in the Art and Politics of Biography. It's Something, the higher form of cannibalism part comes from Rudyard Kipling. Um, there are all kinds of sort of negative uh, stereotypes of what biographers do in terms of following around their, their figures almost like they're vampires. So I have a lot of, a lot of fun with that in, in the various books I've written about biography, including one called Biography, A User's Guide. So I've written about, my first biography was of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, And I've done other film figures, uh, movie stars, Dana Andrews, and a great character actor, Walter Brennan. And I've written about film extensively. Uh, I've written about a a number of women figures, Martha Gellhorn, a journalist, and also a novelist. And some people know her best as Ernest Hemingway's third wife, and the only woman to have walked out on him. Um, Then there's also Rebecca West, a wonderful uh, English prose writer. Uh, author of a great travel book, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, about her trip through the Balkans, through what was then Yugoslavia. Uh, and lesser-known figures like Joe Craigie, a British filmmaker, a British politician, her husband, Michael Foote. I did separate biographies of them. So it's a whole range of subjects. Uh, the poet Amy Lowell and uh, a, and also Sylvia Plath they actually have done a, a, two biographies of Plath. The second one is The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, which came out almost at the same time as this Faulkner biography, in which I really attempt to go into the the last days of her life. So I'm very active. I'm a member of the Biographers International Organization. And actually, I've just started a podcast called The Life in Biography, which is about my two most recent books on Plath and Faulkner, but it's more generally about why people read biographies, what really goes on in the biographer's mind, how you put a book together, uh, dealing with people's reactions, reviews of biographies, and so on. For years, I wrote a, for several years, I wrote a column on biography for the newspaper New York Sun. So that gives you sort of a rundown of the the range of my interests and uh, how really closely focused I am on biography and even the history of biography.
1: I really like your approach to biography in the Faulkner book because so many biographies tend to have a very, they, they focus upon the person's life. And what you've done in it is that you've done a lot to, you set up the, the historical context, uh, but you also try to integrate uh, what we know of Faulkner through his writings into it, not just the, you know, the letters and, and, and the nonfiction material, yeah. but, but the fiction as well.
0: Yes, I could give you a good example of that. Um, I consider his greatest work, and, and many people think it's his most difficult novel. It's called *Absalom, Absalom*. It's actually from a passage in in the Bible uh, about uh, a, a father and his son and the, the tragedy involving them. Uh, and he tra- he sort of transforms this into a story of the the uh, Civil War South uh, and how a father rejects his son. Uh, partly because of his blood, really, uh, that he's of mixed parentage, black and white. It's one of Faulkner's most profound statements on race. Uh, And I got very interested in how he put that novel together and what that novel meant to him. After all, that's what biographers try to do. They try to understand the the roots, the origins of, of, uh, in this case, a writer's work. And one of the things that's really curious about Absalom, Absalom is that a good part of it is not set in the South. Faulkner is known certainly as a southern novelist and, and his uh, series of novels called the Yoknapatawpha series, which is set in his mythical county, uh, very closely uh, uh, connected to the actual town he lived in, Oxford, Mississippi. But in his, his uh, novel, Absalom, Absalom, a good part of it is set in Harvard. Uh, and uh, when Faulkner wrote the novel, he had he had certainly been in the Northeast, but he he didn't know Harvard well. He knew Yale very well, but not Harvard. And I I kept thinking about, well, why didn't he put it in Yale? Yale is a prestigious college. You could easily have part of it set at Yale. Two college roommates who were thinking about this, you know, story of Thomas Sutton and and his sons and what happens to them during the Civil War? Why does he do it in Harvard? Uh, and then, as I was, got into the biography itself, Faulkner spent part of his very early apprenticeship years as a writer in New Orleans, including one very six-month 6, uh, six month intense period. Well, who does he make friends with? He, he makes friends with a number of Northerners. Where are these Northerners educated? Harvard. Uh, that began to unlock certain things about Faulkner's mentality and sensitivity, because one of his greatest characters, Quentin Compson, goes to Harvard, and he's the one who's helping to tell this story in Absalom, Absalom. And then it's even more curious that the person that Quentin is telling his story to is a Canadian, a Canadian roommate named Shreve McCannon. Well, partly Faulkner was drawing on his own experience. He trained in the RAF in Toronto, Canada, during the First World War and got to know a lot of Canadians. But it's more than that. It's a combination of Faulkner's experiences in New Orleans and um, in the South, particularly in New Orleans, because he met one particular man who was educated at Harvard. His name is Oliver Lafarge. Lafarge was an anthropologist, and he was also a novelist. And if you look at the way Faulkner writes Absalom, Absalom, You might almost call it an anthropological novel because it really deals with the whole issue of ethnicity and race almost from a global anthropological perspective. But it's even more than that. When you look at Shreve, he's got these these moon-shaped glasses, spectacles. That's what Oliver Lafarge had. I don't think any biographer has ever connected all these things together. That's the kind of thing that just sends... Uh, a biographer like me into ecstasy when you begin to see that all what seem to be all these disparate elements of a person's life, how he could put all that together in one book,
1: and how you need to understand the life to to see where all these elements in his novels and other works are coming from.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, and and it, you you begin to understand. Well, why is a certain novel structured the way it is? Why does it shift between the south the south and the north? Well. Faulkner, when he was very young, just about 20 years old, followed a friend of his, Phil Stone, up to Yale. And uh, the people started reacting to Faulkner. He had never been out of the South. he had never been out of really out of his town, Oxford, Mississippi. And they thought, you know, his Southern drawl, he had a very soft Southern drawl. He was kind of hard to understand. And he was treated really as a kind of foreigner. Well, again, this leads me to another one of Faulkner's greatest novels, *The Sound of the Fury*, in which again one of his greatest characters, Quentin Compson, he's both in *The Sound of the Fury* and in *Absalom, Absalom*. Quentin is walking around Cambridge, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard is. He's walking around Cambridge and he meets this little Italian girl who's lost, and he takes her hand and they walk around Cambridge together and he goes into a baker shop and this woman is muttering about foreigners and there's a whole theme in the sound of Theory about sort of nativist america and foreigners and and Faulkner has such compassion the way he writes this scene with the little girl and i began to think about well he knows about this because he himself was treated as a kind of foreigner you know people would say say that again bill because you know they didn't understand it, but they were also sort of charmed by his his southern dialect, and and were trying to to understand it. So I think he 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 had that kind of um, uh, he had this uh, empathy uh, for people that were different from himself. And he himself grew up in the south. Uh, his his great grandfather had served in the Civil War; had been a Civil War hero. There were these generations of Faulkner. With this military tradition and uh, this sort of traditionalist uh, view of everything, and he grew up in that, and yet, as he emerges as a young adult and becomes interested in poetry and interested in writing, and then uh, has these experiences in other places uh, uh, in in Yale and New York City and Toronto, and ultimately goes to uh, um, to Italy and England and France as a young man, all of these things begin to give him a worldview of his hometown.
1: What led you to write a biography of William Faulkner?
0: Uh, it goes way, way back. Uh, I first read William Faulkner in high school, we're going back to the early 1960s, uh, and was enchanted with the sound the fury, although I have to admit I don't think I understood much of it. Um, but... Uh, There was something about the way he treated human characters, human identity, uh, that really the the contrast in brothers like Quentin, who's very cerebral, and his brother Jason, who's very talkative and very, thinks he's very realistic and practical, and so on. And I got very interested in that. Uh, I took Southern Literature as an undergraduate at Michigan State University. And then did my dissertation. Uh, in, it was finished in 1975 with the great Faulkner scholar Michael Milgate, and that became my first book in 1984. I never thought then that I was going to do a biography of Faulkner. I thought I would simply be a literature scholar, but I got interested in biography. Uh, did many, many other subjects, and I was coming sort of toward the end of my teaching career, about though six, seven years ago. And I decided, in a sense, to come back to my first love, to to go full circle uh, and do a biography of Faulkner. There there was one other motivating factor. Uh, Around 2005, a Faulkner biography came out. And by that time, I had written several biographies. And I reviewed this biography uh, for The New York Sun. uh, And I gave it sort of a mixed review. And that's when I really began to think, you know, there's another way to do a Faulkner biography. That's another thing that people, I think, need to know about biography. They think of it as the story of someone's life, and certainly it is. But often, especially if the figure has been done before, like Marilyn Monroe, one of my subjects, or like William Faulkner, there have been you know, half a dozen major biographies of Faulkner. Someone might say, well, why on earth would you have to write another one? We know his story. And my point is that I read all those biographies and and reviewed the latest ones and realized uh, there were certain key elements, certain things in Faulkner's life that biographers had not covered. And with my own experience in Hollywood, for example, Faulkner spent uh, off and on uh, over a 20-year period, he he spent probably the equivalent of four years in Hollywood. So that was one thing that really... uh, Got me interested because I felt I knew things about film production. I knew things about screenwriting. I had contacts in California. I knew where archives were that I was sure I would find new material on Faulkner. All that was part of it. Uh, other aspects of these biographies that I thought um, needed, in a sense, fixing or refurbishing were, for instance, Faulkner's wife. She really she's in those biographies, but she doesn't come alive as a person. Uh, and it's important because she also wrote, and some of what she wrote had an impact on Faulkner. So all of these elements about his own family life and the other thing that I found out about him that, that uh, is mentioned in the other biographies, but, but is much, a much bigger story in my life, is what a family man. Of all modern novelists, I'd say Faulkner is the greatest family man with an exception Extended family of cousins and nephews and nieces, many of whom he financially supported, uh, even while he was writing these great works of literature and taking these trips to Hollywood. I discovered the diary and letters of his stepson, Malcolm Franklin. I found, uh, you know, similar kinds of documents written by family members uh, that made an enormous difference. Uh, I deal with his wife Estelle's letters and her description of Faulkner, which I think give you a very different view of him than, you know, his male companions and and the uh, people he worked with. So there were a lot of factors that went into it. And I must say, once I began to do the research, it was just exhilarating. I'll tell you one brief story. There was a Faulkner biographer, Carvel Collins, who began a biography of William Faulkner in 1948. And he died in 1990, never having written a word of the biography. But he collected an enormous amount of material. Uh, he interviewed Faulkner's mother. He interviewed Faulkner. He interviewed Faulkner's brother. Uh, Faulkner, when he, was, when he would come to New York to see his publishers at Random House, would stay in the Algonquin Hotel Well, Carvel Collins went and he interviewed the staff of the Algonquin Hotel, and he had transcripts of all these interviews, and they had been sitting in his collection at the University of Texas for decades. And for some reason, the other Faulkner biographers never went through what turned out to be 105 boxes of material. So it was like having someone else's biography never having been published as kind of part of the raw material of my biography. So it it became you know quite a uh, quite an extensive enterprise. I originally had projected one volume, and one of the reasons there are two volumes is in order to really understand Faulkner as a writer and as a human being, you you need that length. I think his life stands up to that kind of treatment.
1: You mentioned that Faulkner was very much of a family man, and family is a major theme in his uh, in his uh, literature. You also, oh, yeah. and, and so it makes it makes sense that you start your biography by looking at uh, Faulkner's family background. W- what was Faulkner's uh, family like? What were his uh, ancestors like? And, and and how did that inform uh, our understanding of of his fiction?
0: Right. Well, uh, growing up, uh, William Faulkner kept hearing these stories about his great grandfather William Faulkner. Uh, who actually spelled his name without the U? F A L K N E R. Uh, and you can see not only photographs in my book, but I've done a book trailer that's on YouTube, uh, in which you you see the huge statue in the Ripley Mississippi uh, town in the cemetery. Uh, this towering sca- uh, statue of uh, Colonel William Cuthbert Faulkner, uh, who uh, was this sort of looming presence in his great-grandson's life. No, none of the other generations had, had sort of matched what the grand- grandfather had done, because not only had he uh, distinguished himself in the Civil War, he, he also was a novelist. He wrote a novel called The White Rose of Memphis that went through like 40 editions uh, well after uh, uh, Colonel Faulkner died. It was a very popular uh, uh, novel set on a, a Mississippi River boat. And Faulkner grew up saying things like, I'd, you know, I'd like to write like my, grand, uh, my great-grandpappy. Uh, so that was really a dominating presence. But just as important uh, in terms of aesthetics, in terms of an interest in art, was Faulkner's mother, Maud. Maud was a painter, uh, and uh, she painted not just members of her family, she painted their black servants one of whom Caroline Barr was uh, essentially Faulkner's nursemaid. Faulkner grew up listening to Caroline Barr's stories about Reconstruction. And while the white people would talk about things like, oh, what a terrible tragedy it was that we had these black governments during Reconstruction, Caroline Barr would tell them about how black people were terrorized by white people during Reconstruction. And you can see these two heritages uh, uh, in a sense, not really competing, but complementing each other in Faulkner's novels. There's there's one Faulkner novel, The Unvanquished, which is actually set during the Civil War, and you can see there both the white and the black perspectives. You see the young son Bayard Sardis, who you know worships his father, uh, the Colonel, who's very much modeled after uh, after Faulkner's great grandfather, uh, and he's got a companion, a black companion named Ringo. And they're playing a civil war game. They're playing as if it's the Battle of Vicksburg. And one of the slaves comes in. His name is Lush, and he he kicks over their toy soldiers, the the, the little mud patch that they were turning into the Mississippi River. Uh, and essentially tells them, you know, that the South is losing. He doesn't use those words, but to in in effect, he's Saying by destroying the game that you're know, you're really losing the war uh and they're they're lionizing the the slave master colonel Sarterson Lucian, in a sense has more information than the 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 whites that these boys are growing up with at least he's more he, he's more attuned to what's happening. It's interesting because about oh a couple of years ago, I reviewed a um uh a biography of general Sherman and about his march through the South uh, and into Georgia. And, you know, one of the things that Sherman relied on, and, and uh, much more than, than some of the other Civil War generals, he relied on black people. He relied on slaves who provided him with intelligence about, you know, where to look for these, these Confederates. Uh, and Faulkner knew these things by listening to Caroline Barr. So he had a very rich uh um heritage, both historical and literary, his mother was a great reader uh, His mother was really quite something uh, uh, when she died on her um uh bedroom table next to her her bed uh was a copy of d h lawrence's novel lady Chatterley's lover uh so for someone of her generation. Uh, to have those kinds of interests. In other words, she had a sense of not just the Southern heritage, but but of uh, raising a child. And he was the only he had a, he had other brothers, but he was the only child with these kinds of literary and aesthetic interests. Um, she had a sense uh, of his greatness uh, that really no one else in the family really understood. Certainly not his father, who who loved to read, you know, Saint um, Gray. <laughs> Western stories, shoot 'em ups that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I was really surprised by how uh, you, how in, it was interesting to see how you integrated uh, The Virginian by, by Owen Whistler into oh, yeah. uh, th- this understanding of, of Faulkner's uh, early life. Uh, and,
0: yeah, uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a continuing theme. Uh, the Virginian is the southerner who is the epitome of the gentleman and how a gentleman should behave. And right through Faulkner's writing, there's a lot about the whole code of the gentleman. Uh, In fact, his last novel, his last published novel, The Reavers, is all about that, about a young boy growing up to learn what the responsibilities of the gentleman are. So, and Faulkner carried himself that way. Uh, Once in Hollywood, uh, there were some screenwriters talking about Faulkner, and he, he could be sort of aloof and... Very aristocratic looking, and and uh, not certainly not just one of the boys. And uh, one one woman sized to him, she said, "You know, he's a professional southerner. <laughs> 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 he had this. He and and that's you know what does that mean really? I think you know it's the code of the gentleman. It's what he got from the Virginian. And the thing about that is, it wasn't just him. Everybody in his family read the Virginian. Even his father read the Virginian." So it, it was it was just in the bones in the blood,
1: and it was interesting. You mentioned how he's this professional Southerner where he's in places like like Hollywood and 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 New York as well. But it, it's by contrast when he's growing up in Oxford, you describe how he is. He's not really that uh part of that aristocratically. He's in the sense of being part of the, the his family's not part of the town. You, you portray them in the uh, in your book as sort of having, you know, fallen off a bit, that they're not quite as yeah. grand as they had once had been.
0: That's right. The Faulkners were still a prominent family, but it's a kind of, you know, like a shabby gentility. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one, as I was saying before, no one can sort of match the illustrious career of the colonel, who, who, in, in, by the way, is murdered by one of his business partners. So it was a very dramatic, even you might say melodramatic life, and nothing that his or grandsons uh, accomplished came anywhere near in terms of capturing the community's imagination. So William Faulkner growing up, really, uh, it took him a long time to appreciate his father at all. Uh, his his father didn't think much of him and he tried to just stay out of his father's way. So he became a kind of alienated figure in some ways in Oxford. Um, and that's one of the reasons why his, his, uh, the young girl he fell in love with, Estelle Oldham, became so important to him because she also was a great reader. She was, by her teens, she was reading people like Joseph Conrad, and so was William Faulkner. So they had a great deal of in common and formed a kind of bond uh, that, that was really important to him. And then when she, uh, her family wanted her to marry well, and marrying a Faulkner might have been marrying well if William Faulkner had behaved like the eldest son of a distinguished family. That is, if he had had a profession. If he had, you know, he didn't finish high school. Uh, he 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 didn't seem to want to settle down. And so the family looked around and they found this uh, fellow, Cornell Franklin, who was an attorney and who did have a distinguished career. Who took uh, Estelle. Uh, off to the Far East, uh, really, for a while, um, devastating William Faulkner, uh, because that's the girl he thought he was going to marry. At one point, she even said, why don't we just run off? And he said, no, no, why not? Well, because he was a gentleman. (laughs) 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 Gentlemen don't do those sorts of things. They, They don't overthrow family traditions like that. So, that's part of what makes him such a fascinating figure because in some ways he's so traditional, he's so conservative in other ways he's so radical Mm -hmm. and, and doesn't, doesn't want to fit into the the conventions of society.
1: There's an element of, of of artifice as well. And I was thinking that that really stands out, especially when you're, when uh, you get into his war service, because the contrast you have between what you uncover about, his actual war service versus how you describe his portrayal of it when he comes back and is parading right. around Oxford in his, in his RAF <laughs> uniform.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very funny. He, you know, the thing I learned, I don't think this is in the other biographies. I didn't realize that before he, he, uh, went North and, and then to Canada to sign up in the RAF, um, he had, like Hemiway, he wanted to be sort of an ambulance driver. Dos Passos had done this too. The novelist of that generation, uh, Archibald McLeish, poet, uh, many of them went abroad before the U.S. entered the First World War. After all, the U.S. didn't enter it until 1917, and the First World War starts in August 1914. And he wanted, to, like many young men of his generation, he wanted to be part of, his action, of the action and so he wanted to be an ambulance driver, too, and his mother just wouldn't let him. She said, you know, you're just you're too young. You can't do that. Uh, and then so what does he do uh, with his friend Phil Stone? They go up first to Yale where, where Stone is studying for a law degree, uh, and then they make it over to Canada and and is just it's a complete fiction. He even in his application for the IRF says he was born in England <laughs> in a village named Finchley. Uh, it just utterly, you know, made up. Uh, and he trains in flight school. We we have uh, drawings of uh, airplanes that he made, and he was going through the training. But the war ended before he even took his first flight. But he writes a letter home, and he says, you know, I, I'm so excited. I had my first flight today. It was complete fiction. It never happened. Uh, and then he comes home, and uh, he's got a cane. He tells some people he's got a plate in his head. Uh, you know, that he's, he's been wounded. He's a wounded warrior. Uh, and it's interesting. There are some people in Oxford, uh, his hometown who seem to accept the stories, but there are others, a good friend of his, Ben Wasson's who became his first, uh, uh, literary agent. Said, oh, we knew this, that that's what Bill was like. You know, he would make up these stories. We we never believed that he was actually in the war and flew planes and you know crashed a plane in France and so on. But and he was still doing this in the 1920s in New Orleans. And, you know, 1925, he was telling people, and even later than that, when he went to Hollywood, uh, he had this lover, Mita Carpenter, and he uh, he woke up one night in sweats, and she said, "What's wrong?" And he say. Oh, you know, I was reliving my war experiences. Well, he didn't have any war
1: experiences. It makes me wonder the degree to which he started to sort of internalize his own, you know, fictional account of being in the war.
0: Well, that's it. When you read his war stories and even veterans, he had a, a, again, a Hollywood screenwriter, Lawrence Stallings, who had been in the war, who lost a leg in the war. And when he read Faulkner, it seemed so authentic to him that he never questioned it. He thought Faulkner had, you know, had seen active service just like he had. And when you read some of the the um, Faulkner, like he, many young men of his of his uh, uh, age, um, World War One age, were fascinated with airplanes. I mean, Faulkner knew all the mechanics of how you did fly a plane, even though he never actually literally flew one. He didn't. He did take flying lessons later in the early 30s and did learn how to fly a plane. And actually, he wasn't all that good at it, but he did learn how to fly. But when you read his stories, you could easily think that, yeah, this man really was in the war.
1: So how does he develop as a writer? Because you describe how it's it's almost as soon as the war is over and he's discharged, he's beginning this process of trying to get published, Uh, initially poetry and then other works. How, how does he transition into this, and, and where does this come from, his his impulse, his drive into writing?
0: Well, it starts at a very early age. Uh, there are no books from when he was like uh, seven, eight years old. Uh, he had quite an ability uh, to draw. Uh, I think his mother encouraged this. Um he was uh, he he was always observing things. His father was just uh, because the the the, the uh, grandfather owned uh, a railroad. Um, the the his, Faulkner's father uh, was just absolutely um, obsessed with with trains and uh, worked for the railroad. And some some of Faulkner's earliest drawings are about trains, for example, before he got interested in planes. And so. Part of that literary uh, impulse is family inspired, particularly from his mother. Uh, her mother also had an artistic sensibility, so there's that's encouraged on the maternal side of the family. Then the mother is searching because there weren't very many people in Oxford who could teach this young boy much about art. Uh, Phil Stone, this fellow that the, he was an attorney who uh, Faulkner accompanied to Yale, uh, is the one that starts to uh, give him books, uh, to talk to him about writing, about how there's this bigger world of literature. Uh, and that's what really gets Faulkner started. And like a lot of young writers, he begins as a poet. Uh, and his poetry uh, is never first rate, And he, but he goes on with it for several years uh uh and what happens the way he makes the transition really to prose is when he gets to new orleans and he meets the writer sherwood anderson and uh he starts reading anderson's stories and a bond is is formed between the two men uh they both had a great love of horses and anderson though he wasn't a southerner he was a Midwesterner. He spent a lot of time around stables. Well, Faulkner's father owned a stable. Faulkner knew a lot about horses and loved horses. And so, and uh, Anderson had even written a book called Horses and Men. Uh, and so they get to talking, and Anderson puts Faulkner in a story as a character named David. The story's called The Meeting South. And then it becomes sort of reciprocal. They start telling tall tales about this character named L. Jackson, uh, uh, who lives in a a Louisiana swamp. Uh, And that's when, through this letter writing and this exchange of tales through letters, I think uh, Falker begins to see the the virtues of prose and that he's pretty good at it. And then he finds out that he can write these stories for a New, New Orleans newspaper, sort of sketches, kind of thing that Stephen Crane did as a young writer, too. Uh, And he could get $10 a sketch, which in 1925 New Orleans was quite a lot of money for this young man. Uh, And that's what begins him on the road to prose and uh, to his first novel, Soldiers Pay, which is about a returning war veteran who's going to die. It's pretty clear. His injuries are so bad. He's really been blinded and and his nervous system is shot. Uh, and again, if you read *Soldiers' Pay*, uh, the film director Howard Hawks read it. And he just he fell in love with Faulkner because he he just he just found it so authentic.
1: So, how uh, quickly does he emerge as a writer? I mean, are his early books uh, successful? Does he have uh, difficulty getting attention, or uh, or is he a success from the start? Does he uh, do do all those early connections with people like Anderson? Uh, help him out.
0: The connections help him get publishers. Uh, the soldier's pay is well reviewed. Uh, it gets a lot of positive reviews. The second novel, Mosquitoes, not not quite so good, although it's set in New Orleans. Uh, he becomes uh, certainly not a popular or best-selling writer by any means. What happens is he he establishes this enormous reputation among other writers in the literary community and among publishers in New York. Beginning at around 1930, uh, this is after The Sound of the Fury is published and The As I Lay Dying is coming out. He's met uh, a fellow named Harrison Smith, who's a publisher, who, who lends Faulkner money, who encourages him, who uh, knows that Faulkner's books are not going to make a lot of money, that they're sort of experimental, it's going to be difficult uh he has a lot of friends who have a lot of faith in him that on the face of it someone could look at it and say this guy's just not going to make it you know he he may have some kind of minor reputation among the literati but uh he he he's, he's never he's never really go- going to um amount to that much in the eyes of the world let's say and that's when Falker makes a really key decision. Uh, he decides, well, I'm going to show him. And he writes this novel, Sanctuary, which uh, is, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a gangster story. It comes out just at the time that Edward G. Robinson is in Little Caesar. In other words, the timing is fabulous. Uh, James Cagney is doing a gangster film, Public Enemy. By 1932, Faulkner is in New York, and he's a celebrity. Uh, He's a big shot. Uh, Sanctuary sells more than all of his previous books combined. Um, And that's when he first gets the attention of the movies. Because remember, 1930, 31, 32, the movies are just beginning to talk. We're just coming out of the silent era and they're looking for writers. Hollywood is looking for writers to do scripts. Uh they really need playwrights, uh, novelists, uh whoever can make it out to California. And here Faulkner's done this sensationalist novel uh about, you know, this uh southern girl, Temple Drake who gets involved with this gangster named Popeye who rapes her with a corn cob. I mean, this was just shocking for uh uh, contemporary life then, that kind of book, Faulkner became not famous, really, but infamous.
1: You, you mentioned something else here that in, in the book that I, I hadn't really appreciated, which was that he's also emerging at a time when writers had a greater stature in the country than they oh, do yeah. today. And I thought that was yeah. a really fascinating point about how he is not just a writer, he is a literary celebrity, because at yes. that time there were things like literary celebrities.
0: Writing means meant something different then. Uh, the writer Norman Mailer said, uh, oh, this was already 20 years ago, he said, you know, uh, novelists just don't count for much anymore. People read them. But, I mean, for instance, Rebecca West, one of my other biographical subjects, uh, made her first trip to America in 1923. She sailed, you know, she took a boat. Uh, And when she docked in Manhattan, there was a whole fleet of reporters waiting to interview her. Can you imagine that happening now? That gives you some sense of how different it was, how a writer could be a star. You know, there's just, how many writers could we mention that just Anybody in the street? If you said mention the name, it would have to be maybe Stephen King, I suppose.
1: That was the name that came to my mind too.
0: <laughs> yeah, mo- mo- most people would probably and and uh, you know the woman who wrote Harry Potter,
1: J.K. Rowling, yes, uh,
0: yeah, J- George R.R. R. R. Martin. But but I mean, you think about how yeah,
1: they're tied to about, properties now, right?
0: That's that's about you know that you know it has to be someone who's just mega successful. You know, if I went out on the street. You know, people might not may have heard of Faulkner because maybe maybe they you know he he was taught in school, Uh, but the writer simply does not have a place in American culture now that a writer used to have. But I have to tell you, Faulkner was complaining that the writer didn't have a big enough place when he was alive. (laughs) (laughs) So it's all relative, of course. But uh, now it's it's become you know so so different. There, there aren't as many reviews in newspapers. You know, I'll be lucky with my my William Falker biography if three or four major newspapers review it. Well, in Faulkner's time, when he came out with a novel or you know an important biography, it would it would get reviewed in hundreds of papers all over the country. You know, it was the the print media was, was you know one of my other subjects. Amy Lowell was a poet; she was reviewed you know by a A newspaper in Sheboygan in Illinois, you know, uh, stories about her would get into the local press. Nothing, you know, can happen. You know, uh, the only prayer a writer would have now is is what I'm doing to try to get a social media following on Facebook or Twitter, things like that. Uh, So it was completely different in Faulkner's day. Even if a writer like Sanctuary was considered a huge success, well, it was sold about 10,000 copies. That doesn't sound like a lot of copies, and it certainly isn't today. But then it, that was pretty good. You know, it wasn't, he wasn't Zane Gray. He wasn't, you know, doing hundreds of thousands of copies sold. But but he he was a force, you know. There would be articles about him in the Brooklyn Eagle, uh, in newspapers like that, in the New York Times. So, yeah, it was it was quite a different world.
1: So how does his growing uh, fame, his, his, his stature as a writer, Affect his personal life. How, does it, uh, th- th- this is the period where he marries Estelle. Uh, what yeah. is he doing with his success?
0: Uh, he's spending every every time he gets. <laughs> he's not a good saver. Uh, he buys this uh, dilapidated. Uh, it's, it's a little misleading to call it a mansion because it wasn't, it wasn't a big plantation home, but it was it was the home of a an Oxford, what you call a merchant prince. Uh, which he had to fix up because it had really gotten deteriorated. So he buys a home, takes out a mortgage, has his first first and only child, Jill. Uh, eventually, when he goes to Hollywood and makes some money, he buys an airplane. Uh, he's 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 setting himself up uh, as a kind of landed proprietor. He's, his home is next to a woods called Bailey's Woods because that used to be the owner of the woods. And he's slowly acquiring all the property around because he doesn't want it to be subdivided. He doesn't want to be hemmed in by a, uh, a housing development. So he's he's in some ways acting like a uh, uh, not exactly a prosperous citizen, but a landed gentleman in a way. Uh, he buys a farm, Greenfield Farm. Uh, he he does all these kinds of things so that he spends so much money and then. His brother, Dean, dies in an air crash, and he supports Dean, the niece, who's named Dean after her father, and uh, uh, Dean's mother. And his brother, John, is not doing well, so he starts supporting him and puts him on the farm. Uh, And so the bills keep getting, you know, uh, bigger and bigger and bigger. He goes into the local department store, and he says to the owner, he said, you know, you might get paid. Several months or a year from now, he said, "I could just write you my autograph, and someday it's going to be more worth more than my <laughs> bill here at the department store." And that the the uh, descendant of that owner has that letter framed in the in Nielsen's department store in the Oxford Square today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was thinking as I was reading this uh, part of your book about how Faulkner really does during this period seem to be a man out of his time because. In addition to doing that, I mean, he's this this great success during the Great Depression, as more and more people are, are are finding it difficult to make a living. And he's also, you you wouldn't think there was a prohibition in place, given how much he was drinking during this period yeah. as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, during pro- prohibition, it was certainly not a law that was was well observed. Uh, and he also, he, you know, he uh, he drank corn liquor. He drank this stuff that was made in southern stills. You know, there's a very funny picture of him in New Orleans with the Sherwood Anderson, uh, uh, a drawing in which you know you see their table, and then below the table are all these one-gallon jugs, you know, and they're, they're they're full of corn liquor. Uh, and he would all, always introduce uh, visitors from the north coming coming to Oxford to this to this corn liquor. But he, the funny thing about Faulkner was, on the one hand, he could act like a farmer and a yokel and pretend he didn't know anything. Uh and then he could walk into a, a uh, Hollywood restaurant like Muzo and Frank and you know order the best French wines and he knew what he was doing. He knew what to you know what to order. Uh wonderful connoisseur of food, a very sophisticated man. Uh and yet um wasn't interested in being in that world per se. Uh and was really homesick when he was in Hollywood. But he gave a completely misleading impression, uh, and other biographers have taken him at his word that he hated Hollywood. Well, there were aspects certainly that he hated, but he also had a very good time. He met some really interesting people. You know, he met all these emigres that were coming over from Nazi Germany. Uh, he had a woman that he was in love with who was involved in making movies with Howard Hawks. Uh, he had. He had the enormous respect, it's very interesting. I found out at the studios. Uh, they looked out for him. you know, occasionally he would go on a drinking binge, and they would protect him, you know, try to prevent him from getting fired. Uh, the interesting thing about Faulkner is there were always people, including Faulkner himself, who knew he was a great writer, and they treated him like that like he was in a category all by himself, and it is quite astounding.
1: So you also mentioned how important the his time in Hollywood is to him for him financially. That that as whatever he's doing with his writing in terms of publishing short stories, his income yeah. from Hollywood really dwarfs it. What exactly is he doing as a writer in Hollywood? Was he producing, and how much of his work is actually making it onto the screen during this period?
0: Yeah, like a lot of screenwriters, he he wrote a great deal, great many scripts. He probably worked on at least fifty projects. And not more than a dozen of those were ever really produced, and his name wasn't even on some of the projects that was produced for all sorts of reasons uh sometimes reasons of the union and sometimes machinations at the studio and so on uh, but he he wrote some wonderful scripts uh and probably his two greatest successes uh are is a uh, film that Hawks did with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, To, to Have It Have Not, uh, and also with Howard Hawks, The Big Sleep, which was based on Raymond Chandler's novel. Those are wonderful um, novels. The interesting thing about Faulkner is even though he could seem so aloof, he was wonderful to collaborate with. For instance, on The Big Sleep, he collaborated with a woman, Lee Brackett, and she said he was just one of them. He'd come in and he'd say, all right, I got this blocked out, and I'm going to do these scenes, and how about you doing those scenes? And she had written a, you know, a detective novel, and in fact, when Hawks hired her, he, he hadn't seen her when he he wrote her a letter and asked her to, to be in the film, and he didn't know uh, Lee was, was a she. He thought it was a he, but Hawks was fine with working with women, and so was Faulkner. Faulkner actually learned a great deal uh, in in terms of what he put into his women characters uh, from working in Hollywood. So sometimes he was called in to do a whole script, uh, and there are several whole scripts that I write about in my biography, both in the first and the second line, and sometimes he was called in to do a scene. Hawks did this uh, very popular film called Air Force, and a very uh, distinguished screenwriter, Dudley Nichols, had done a death scene that took place on a plane, and Hawks didn't like it. He thought it was too sentimental, and he went to Faulkner. And Faulkner, you know, and the other thing about Faulkner is he was fast, both as a novelist and as a screenwriter. He could could write, and I'm not exaggerating, sometimes 10 times as fast as any other screenwriter. So he he was almost like a made-to-order cook. And he went into this film, uh, Air Force, and in a day wrote the death scene. Uh, And Hawks was so pleased. And Faulkner never, if you look at any of the recorded interviews, never acted as if any of this meant anything. But I found a letter to his son-in-law which said, you've got to see Air Force. And by the way, I wrote this particular scene. Isn't it good? <laughs> so he, 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 Hollywood had its impact on him
1: and yet it, you you mentioned how they they res, that they esteemed him as a writer and that they protected him as a writer and yet you also explained that they didn't necessarily you know put him on a pedestal and and take everything that he had done and, and try to preserve it and i'm thinking that that uh in here in terms of the first film which is the one that you focus on in, in this volume which is yep. today we live which yeah you know, we, which I, I thought you had this fascinating description of the evolution of the movie uh, in terms of in, in its in its uh, early development before they started filming it.
0: Yes, that's right. It was based on a story of his uh, turnabout, and it was all about men at war. It was about an American who who was a flyer, a bomber, and uh, about these Englishmen who did these these now what the American they would call sort of PT boats. Uh, that would go up to German boats uh, really daring and fire torpedoes at them and then have to turn around and hope not to be uh, shot up themselves. And that was essentially minute war story. And Faulkner wrote the screenplay and Hawks said, wonderful. Uh, and they sent it to the producer, Irving Thalberg at MGM, who was the, the person. And he said, oh, this is wonderful. I'm not going to touch it. And then, you know, a week later, whatever uh, Hawks comes to Faulkner and said, you know, I just, Wahlberg just told me that uh, Joan Crawford, you know, they, she's a big star and they need to put her in a picture and it's going to have to be our picture. <laughs> and Faulkner, Faulkner dryly said, I don't recall there being a woman in the story. <laughs> but the, it, this is what I like about Faulkner is unlike Scott Fitzgerald, who is very, I am the novelist, how dare you, you know, tamper with what I've just written. I know better than anybody. Faulkner was not like that. When Hawkes said that to him after I think Faulkner got off the initial shock, he met with Joan Crawford. He met with her and she said, Now I I want I want to be I want to be one of the boys. I want to talk like these men. I don't I don't want you know, I don't want this to be soft. I you know, this is this is a woman who's who's involved in the war and is working as a nurse in the war, and I, I want to be portrayed that way. And Faulkner did that, very much so. He he wrote about her, and, you know, he never talked about these things with anybody. But if you read one of his novels, The Wild Palms, which was published in 1929, there's a reference to Eisenstein, and there's a reference to Joan Crawford. And the reason for Crawford is because of Today We Live and his his experience with her. And the reference to Eisenstein. Uh, Eisenstein wrote a play on, about, or a screenplay about the California Gold Rush, Sutter's Gold. Uh, and uh, Howard Hawks gave Eisenstein's screenplay to Faulkner to rewrite. The idea of Faulkner rewriting Eisenstein. And the interesting thing is, both scripts are great, and neither script was produced because <laughs> it would have been very expensive to produce.
1: So, when can we look forward to Volume Two?
0: Volume 2 is going to come out on Faulkner's birthday, September 25th. And uh, there's even more about uh, Hollywood and Faulkner's family. And uh, one of the really interesting things, besides my dealing with films like The Happen Have Not and The Big Sleep, uh, is what happens to Faulkner in Hollywood. He's asked to write uh, a screenplay called Battle Cry. Uh, which uh, Howard Hawks was to direct. And the reason that this was going to happen is, well, the war effort, obviously. It was going to have, part of it was set in China, part of it was set in France, part of it was set in the U.S., part of it was set in North Africa. It was going to cover every theater of the war. It was just incredibly, just colossal, tremendous. And And I have uh, both uh, documented from uh, um, Amita Carpenter, the woman that he was having an affair with, and also um, uh, in a letter of his how excited he was about this. It's a film that broke his heart because they wouldn't, again, they wouldn't uh, make it because it was just going to be so expensive. The closest Hollywood ever came to it was Frank Capra doing a series of documentaries called Why We Fight, which covered every theater of the war, uh, every place. Uh, That changed Faulkner because it was almost like working on a government project. And when he won the Nobel Prize in 1950, his sense of himself as a world figure uh, transformed him. And it appears in his writing. And, And the last part of the volume two is about that, how he actually became and this is not an exaggeration, a diplomat, and behave like a diplomat. Now, many writers have gone on Junkins for the United States as sort of goodwill ambassadors, but no one has behaved quite like a diplomat in the way that William Faulkner did. So I think people are going to be really surprised by that.
1: Well, I do look forward to reading it when it comes out, and I hope that when it does come out, we can also have you back to cover volume two in another podcast.
0: Yeah, I'd love to do it.
1: Well, Carl Rawlison, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.